So I'm going to start off with a story tonight. There was a man who wandered throughout the world seeking his deepest desire. He wandered from one city to another, from one realm to another, looking for fulfillment and happiness. But in all his wanderings, he never really came to it. Finally, one day, tired from his search, he sat down underneath a great tree at the foot of a mountain. What he didn't know was that this was the great wish-fulfilling tree. Whatever one wishes for when seated underneath it immediately becomes true. As he rested in his weariness, he thought to himself, what a beautiful spot this is. I wish I had a home here. And instantly, before his eyes, a lovely home appeared. Surprised and delighted, he thought further, hmm, if only I had a partner to be here with me, then my happiness would be complete. And in a moment, a beautiful woman appeared, calling him husband and beckoning to him. Well, first I'm hungry, he thought. I wish there was some food to eat. And immediately a banquet table appeared, covered with every wonderful kind of food and drink, main courses, pastries, sweets of every variety. The man sat down and began to feast himself hungrily, but partway through the meal, still feeling tired, he thought, you know, I wish I had a servant to serve me the rest of this food. And sure enough, a a servant appeared. Finishing the meal, the man sat back to lean against this wonderful tree and began to reflect. How amazing it is that everything I wish has come true. There is some mysterious force about this tree. I wonder if there's a demon who lives in it. And sure enough, no sooner than he thought that thought than a great demon appeared. Oh my, he thought, this demon will probably eat me up. And that's just what it did. (laughs) So the moral of the story is... (laughs) What is the moral of that story? (laughs) Be careful what you wish for or what tree you lean against. Or, um, one way to consider it is that our pursuits, and we have these, we're constantly pursuing. The very nature of pursuing consumes our life. The demon consumed him. And I think of it like our kind of restless, always trying to get more satisfied or less of this and more of that, really... Um, devours our moments. There's not the presence in those moments. How many of you have, in your introduction to Buddhism, no matter how brief or how long, have in some way been taught that suffering is the, that the cause of suffering is desire? Okay. Okay, So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. But I think just to give you a preview, it's a classical topic in Buddhism and we're going to explore it in a pretty non-classical way, as is my leanings. But first, here's the scripture, the Majjhima Nikaya, from the Buddhist canon, our, our teachings. Most people fail to see reality because of wanting. They are attached, they cling to material objects, to pleasures, to the things of this world. This very clinging is a source of suffering. And then craving, thirst, greed, desire gives rise to dukkha, to suffering. By understanding and relinquishing desire, we become free from suffering. The path to nibbana, to full freedom, is the abandoning and destruction of desire and craving. These readings would make you think that desire certainly is the culprit, yeah? So, and I'll just say for myself, I've shared this with some of you before, that I I first got introduced to Buddhism 
when I was in 10th grade in at a world religions course and they taught some of these teachings and you know, we, we got every religion, well, all six of them, so it was words in every religion, but we got them. And I decided that Buddhism was the one I would never be interested in <laughs> because this thing about suffering, I mean, this thing of, that, you know, it was all grim and all about suffering. And then to make desire the bad guy when I was, you know, as hedonistic as they came and loved my desires, there was just no way. But what I came to understand is that it's, probably one of the biggest misunderstandings in Buddhism is that desire causes suffering. It's not, it's not the desire, it's that we get hitched, we get clinging, we get caught. The desire itself is part of being alive. But maybe just to, um, this, I read you some scriptures, here's a few other readings from Buddhists, Suzuki Roshi, that's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. How many of you have read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind? If you haven't, it's a beautiful book, just to recommend that. So Suzuki Roshi says, What is your deepest longing? Follow your heart. It's a little different flavor, right? And then the Tibetans say, Within desire are the seeds of love and freedom. What is considered the poison is the medicine. Again, a different flavor, right? So. so what I'd like to kind of explore is how there's really a shadow side to either approach. And what I mean by that is if we take the classical language and start thinking that our freedom comes by destroying desire, by getting rid of desire, what's going to happen is because the very nature of being incarnated is to desire is it turns us anti-life. It's like there's something wrong with how I am. It creates aversion to desire, which is just another form of being entrapped. On one side, there's a sense that if we emphasize getting rid of desire, it's like a shame induction. Desire comes up and we're constantly living with the sense of how I am, I shouldn't be. Something's wrong here. The other problem with that approach is that we never get to discover that within desire, when we really pay attention to it, are the seeds of love. We're so busy trying to eradicate it, okay? So we get cut off from our bodies and cut off from our hearts. That's the problem with that approach. Now the emphasis of following our hearts, follow your bliss, right? There's a problem there too, which is that we have a deep conditioning to get so identified with our desire, to spend so many moments pursuing something, that in any moment that we're pursuing something else, we're not here. We're just not here. So there really is a deep dukkha in being caught in this constant leaning forward so that the next moment will contain what this moment does not. Does that make sense? So there's the shadow side of getting identified with desire, have to have, and there's the shadow side of thinking something bad about desire and therefore something's bad about our hearts and our longings. So we'll explore truly the middle way. What is the middle way here? I like this quote from Blake. He says, Those who enter the gates of heaven 
are not beings who have no passions or who've curbed their passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. So the question is, what is a wise understanding of desire? And that's what we'll be exploring. The first is just to say, well, what really is it? What is desire? And um, I think of it as the force of attraction or the glue that really is synonymous with all existence. It's like all existence arises from some wanting to exist and that it's the, really the energy that creates the world, like gravity. It's the great attractor, the energy of coming together. And that without this force, the universe would have, you know, the universe was either going to go to completely, you know, expanding or completely collapsing. Without this force, it would have just been diffused energy, just light. So the gravity of wanting brings together and creates form out of formlessness. And it brings atoms together into molecules. And it brings sperm to eggs. And it brings people to communities. And it brings us together tonight. There's some wanting, some energy. And there can be an enlightened kind of wanting where we are wise and relating to it wisely or there can be grasping, and that's what we're going to explore more. But it's important to know that the essence of wanting, this gravity of coming together, is really what holds the world together, what keeps life happening. Walpola Rahula, who wrote What the Buddha Taught, describes the arising of desire as the basic thirst to exist. So there was a um, story from public radio that described an infant born with a rare disease in which there was no epidermis. So with no skin yet developed, the baby was in excruciating pain. And it was nearly impossible to comfort this child because the least touch was agonizing. And the nurses were starting to avoid the baby and the child was on the brink of death. And finally a wise doctor said, we've got to come up with something that will make the child want to be here. So they decided to play Vivaldi and Mozart and the tide began to turn. And the infant calmed down enough to take medicine and food and the nurses were not so overwhelmed by the child's condition and bit by bit came the necessary healing and growth that would let this child live. So this doctor recognized that without the desire to live, no medical intervention would be enough. That desire is necessary to live. Without sex and the desire for food, we wouldn't be here. So there's desire for love, for connection, for understanding, for growth. And when people lose their desire to live, they jump off bridges, you know. They, they stop wanting to exist, they just don't exist anymore. And on an everyday basis, our desire, our wanting, is what brings us to make decisions on who to be with and what to do and when to eat and how to live. So, have to have it, okay? Have to have it. And yet, as I mentioned, when we're caught in the grip, when there's this desire that things have to be a certain way, then we're not able to be here. So to have a, a, a wise 
relationship with desire, for me it's come to start getting a real honest sense of where I get fixated. And that's not so easy because when we're fixated it's like everything in us is identified in this motion of want it this way and we don't want to step back and take a look, we just want to go get it. <laughs> so to really honestly, it's, it's a courageous thing to start really saying, okay, so where do I get fixated? Where do I leave home because I'm just hooked on something? And I'll, what I'll do is just review some of the kind of traditional places that each of us gets, we lose that kind of presence and we get consumed. And clearly it happens when, through feeling good through sense pleasures, pleasant tastes, sounds, sex, visuals, there's, there's just this, we can have this thing where rather than actually enjoying um, the spring, there's some sense of, I want it to be warmer and I want it this way in order to enjoy. Or, you know, it's like, it's, we're not satisfied with how it is. There's a classic cartoon with two goldfish swimming in the ocean. And one says to the other, so, what is it that your heart really desires? And the response is, well, I'd love to have the fishbowl and the colored gravel and the plastic plants and, you know, the little castle, that little plastic castle, mm, you know, the whole deal. And so you got these fish in the open ocean. (laughs) And it's like, that's like us in spring in some way thinking it's supposed to be different. So that's one area, is we just get hooked on wanting certain sense pleasures and having to have, and then we get fixated on the products that will give them to us. So all of a sudden we need a, a new kitchen or jewelry or an iPod. Or The Dalai Lama described, and I really love this, he, he was teaching somewhere, I think, in Los Angeles, and on his way there he was passing this kind of mall, strip mall, and had this big electronic shop And he described going in and wanting things he didn't even know about, you know? (laughs) That was so great. It's just, there's this wanting. And so embedded in our culture, you know, billions of dollars are spent on advertising to play into that in us which always wants more in some way. And then in a deeper way we get absolutely fixated on affirming our egos in certain ways, um, getting approval. Getting a, having accomplishments, controlling things, having other people, other people behave in a certain way. One writer said, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. <laughs> I can really imagine that one. So that's, again, we get fixated, and it's big with parents and children. Wherever there's a lot of emotions, there's attachment, and we want things a certain way. One friend of mine said, my mom is only as happy as her unhappiest child, (laughs) you know? It's like like we really want things a certain way, and it's natural. And then we get fixated on being right, and that's a really important thing. As soon as you get into a conflict with somebody, you'll get how much you're fixated on being right. We get fixated on being perfect. Some people find it's just, not some people, most of us, it's very hard to rest when we're really sensing our imperfectness. It's hard to settle and be at home. Oscar Wilde wrote, I was working on the proof of one of my poems all morning and took out a comma. In the afternoon I put it in again. (laughs) 
so fixated than that way. Of course we get fixated on our image. It's true, we get fixated on how we look, how we appear to others. Billions again spent on cosmetics and surgery and people will die for their reputation. We get fixated on um, being spiritual, on, on appearing spiritual, on having certain kinds of meditation. One friend described she had uh, somebody was pulled over by a policeman on the way to meditation class for speeding. And the policeman actually asked her, what are you rushing so fast to get to? And she had to say, meditation class. <laughs> Go figure. I thought that was great. So, and then we get fixated in the most subtle level on asserting a self is here. It's like you've been in a conversation and you just sense that you have to make sure that it's known that you're there. It's very hard to sometimes sense that you're not making your presence known. We're fixated on finding some ground, some orientation in the most subtle way to keep on saying this self is here. So in some way, and we, all these different levels, there's some way that we all have our own kind of cluster of where we contract and absolutely have to have things in a certain way. We are pursuing but not being. One of my favorite stories, um, this is one of the uh, Darwin Awards, the 1997 one, Larry Waters of Los Angeles. Uh, He's one of the few that survived his award-winning accomplishment. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly, and when graduating from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him, and when he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets over his backyard. That was not enough. His wants were not being met. One day, he had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. (laughs) He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. Satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Meller Lite, loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it was time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along his pellet, with his pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor in a few hours come back down. Didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 feet or so. Instead, he streaked into the L.A. sky as if shot from a cannon. <laughs> He didn't, climb, he didn't level at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. <laughs> at that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons, lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there drifting, cold and frightened, for more than 14 hours. Then he really got into trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of the Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> A United pilot first spotted Larry. He radioed the tower and described a passing guy in a lawn chair with a gun. (laughs) 
radar confirmed the existence of an object floating 11,000 feet above the airport. <laughs> LAX emergency procedures swung into full alert and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. LAX is right on the ocean. Night was falling and an offshore breeze began to flow. It carried Larry out to sea with the helicopter in hot pursuit. <laughs> Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry. Once the crew determined that Larry was not dangerous, they attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft of the blades would push Larry away whenever they neared. Finally, the helicopter ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore. The difficult maneuver was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled to Earth, he was arrested by the waiting members of the LAPD (laughs) for violating LAX airspace. He was led away in handcuffs. A reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. Larry stopped, turned around, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. (laughs) So... Compulsion. (laughs) So from desires, whether it's subtle or gross, there's this universal conditioning that gets us to do things, whether they're foolish things or whether they're things for our survival or whether they're addictive behaviors that actually destroy us. There is this, this universal conditioning to have this wanting mind. So the... The question is really, can we begin to notice in ourselves, and really it's a quality of pausing and paying attention. I'm going to ask you in a moment to reflect and sense for yourself, if only mind. You know, if there's anything in your life right now that has that quality of if only mind, that you're in some way waiting for things to be different, wanting for things to be different, hard to really arrive when in some way you're carried into it. And so you might just close your eyes and I'll just ask a few questions. And the intention here is to start investigating what is it like when there's the hook of wanting mind. It's not just desire, but there's the hook. Okay, so take a moment to arrive here. you might sense today or this week what might have been an if only a place where your attention got fixated might have been having somebody approve of you or be attracted to you getting a material possession some way you really wanted to change yourself lose weight be more focused, be more successful. Maybe the if only was wanting someone to change their behavior. If only that person would do something different. Maybe the if only is something you want for another person. Maybe it's if only I could get something done, then I could relax. It might be like all of them plus some but just sense for yourself, pick one, pick one area that you know your sense of presence narrows when you get hooked. And for 
this reflection, you might exaggerate a little. Really sense what it is that makes you want this so much. What it's like when you're wanting it. And you might even just feel it in your body. Like if there's a way that you are sitting that could express it if you're leaning forward or if your hands are tighter, if there's an expression on your face, see if you can embody wanting mine. Don't be shy, just sense, see it just for yourself. What is it like when you're really wanting something? Are you metaphorically leaning forward? Is there a tightness? What's your heart feel like? What is your heart like when you're wanting something different, something more? What's your mind like? Do you like yourself when you're wanting, when you're hooked? What's your quality of presence with someone that you care about when in the grip? So just to get familiar with the body, mind, heart, persona of wanting self, not to judge it, but just to be familiar. The Buddha taught about wanting leading to suffering because when we're hooked, our whole sense of who we are contracts. We get identified with the incomplete wanting self, the self that's in pursuit of something, the self that's afraid it won't get something. And in those moments, We've lost track of the wholeness of being, of the love that's here that matters. Zen Master Ryo Khan put it beautifully, he said, if you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. Okay, so open your eyes and this is just to to dip in a little. The invitation is really just become mindful of where you get fixated. And we're going to return again. We're going to do one more meditation tonight where you'll have a chance to see how to loosen the grip a bit when you get fixated. Now, just to say that there's a difference and it's something to examine for yourself between the clinging of wanting mind and when your heart has a kind of longing or an aspiration. You know how we start these classes saying, what is your heart's longing? What do you really care about? And if you check, there's a real difference in the feeling in your body when you're having an aspiration for something versus when there's like a a clutching or a wanting. And one way to consider it is that Aspiration is the recognition of love for our potential. It's for what's here but not necessarily being inhabited or realized. We're not aspiring for something that doesn't exist. It's already here, but it requires more presence to open to it. 
wanting mind wants something different. It seems there's a kind of holding to something different. Last week I shared a a line from D. H. Lawrence that I think really speaks to this. He said, Men are not free when they are doing just what they like. Men are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And there's getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So this gives us a clue as to how to work with wanting mind. That not to make it wrong, but to know that when we're fixated, there's some diving to do. That the very, whatever we're fixated on can be a portal, but we need to keep paying attention to drop to what's the deepest, what the deepest self wants. So how do we dive? Now tonight what we'll do, and we're going to, in our meditation, is explore that. But just to say, we won't explore with the, the suffering of wanting mind and it blossoms into addiction where there's a real compulsive grasping on. A number of you will be joining me in a few weeks. And there's still room, by the way, for this if you want to do the day long where we really explore how to unhook ourselves when we're caught in an obsessing mind and addictive behavior. But any wanting can have that suffering if there's some grip to it. So we'll be exploring that right now. And we begin to unhook ourselves, just as we're doing tonight, if we can first recognize, oh, okay, so here's where I get fixated. That's the first step, to recognize it. The second step, whatever you came up with tonight, whether you get fixated on somebody else paying attention to you or fixated on food or fixated on accomplishing and checking off things off the list, whatever you came up with, not to make it wrong in any way, not to judge the wanting. There's a a wonderful story of Milarepa who is a Tibetan, famous Tibetan teacher And it describes him singing to the demons in his cave. And these are the demons of passion and craving and wanting and aversion and so on. But he, in this particular story, he talks to the demons of wanting and he says to them, It's wonderful you came today. You should come again tomorrow. From time to time we should converse. You know, so it's that thing. It's not push it away. It's like get to know. Find out the essence, the, the, the medicine inside the end of the Melarepa stories, he actually offered his body to be eaten by the demons of desire, (laughs) which I think is great. So that's the first thing, is to recognize where the fixation is and then not to judge it. If we add, some of you might remember the two arrows, the first arrow is when we're hooked in some way, we get fear, anger, passion that grips us, or jealousy, that's the first arrow. And the Buddha said, don't shoot the second arrow and judge yourself and make yourself wrong. That doesn't start the healing. So let's say we have the arrow of fixated wanting. Not to judge it. Trust that it's a portal, okay? The second part after we've noticed it and said, okay, it's here, it's just here, is to begin to investigate, just as you did, just to begin to get to know what's it like to be caught in the grip of wanting mind. Can you sense the tension, the unpleasantness of wanting, the disconnection from presence? 
So a story, an example of this is a, a friend of mine who signed up for a residential meditation retreat and it was a lottery which means it was one of those really popular retreats and she didn't know whether she was going to get in or not and she really, really wanted in and so she got more and more anxious and more and more fixated and she kept calling the retreat center to find out where she was on the list you know, they had a list like a 40 people waiting list and she was like 12 or something and it was borderline whether or not she'd get in a number of people had to get sick or die or cancel or something you know, for her to get in so she was really... Um, in, kind of really tight about it and then she said, oh, okay, wanting mind just like we're talking about tonight this is like, I really want this thing and she could feel in her body and feel the fear of not getting in and you'll find underneath wanting mind is often fear the fear of not getting Okay, when you start examining so she started getting in touch with, well, what is this wanting about? Like, what is it I'm really wanting? And she said, and she had this sense that I want to get in so I can get quiet enough so I can make important decisions about my marriage because her marriage was shaky and really see if I can move forward in that. And so then she, so she, here she is saying, I want to be able to get quiet and listen to my heart and get in for those reasons. And then the next thing was, well, what are you waiting for? You know, so she started, because she was already listening to the wanting, so she started listening to her heart and, and actually becoming more aligned. And it turned out she got in, but her retreat started a month early because she wasn't waiting and, and fixated on getting in. She paid attention. She let the wanting be a portal. And it actually motivated her to really be intimate and listen to her heart. There's a value to any wanting. It's sometimes very buried, but deep inside wanting is something that really has to do with our freedom, our freedom to love and live fully. It's always buried in there. And the reason I love that D.H. Lawrence quote is that we're not free if we're just pursuing the surface level wants where they fixated. For me it's often, can I get the next thing done? You know, our fixation might be having people treat us a certain way. Our fixation might be in some way accomplishing something to prove something. And if we keep on fixating, we don't get down to what the deepest self wants, which is freedom, which is love. Another example that really touched me was a woman that I was working with that really wanted her partner to love her more and love her better. And she noticed it and we worked, you know, on can you sense, you know, how this is feeling and how it is to want another to love you. And you might even sense it for yourself, like if you just sense wanting somebody else to love you, what the feeling is like. And she noticed as she really meditated on wanting her partner to love her more that it created this kind of tension or congestion in her chest, this constricted heart. And as she put it, she said it made her feel her own lovelessness. The more she was fixated on how she wanted her partner to love her, the more she felt her own lovelessness. And so I asked her, you know, if you had your partner loving you the way you wanted to, 
what, what would that be like? And then when she described it, well, I'd be treated like this, and this would be what was going on. She said, and I said, how would that make you feel? And she went, oh, right, if I'm, if I'm held that way and there's that unconditional presence and support and embra- I'd feel embraced. And then she got deeper into it and she said, I'd feel at one, I'd be really, I wouldn't be here, it would just be oneness, it would just be oneness. And um, I said, so I kept saying, well, what's that like? What's that like? And then she stopped speaking. She goes, I'm here. It's here. Because, and this was, if you remember two weeks ago, principle number two, what we long for is already here. But it takes presence. So what she found was what she longed for. The experience she wanted was already in her, but she was assuming it had to come because another person would then treat her another way. This doesn't mean there's not really importance in, fi- in developing relationships where we can be with each other in ways that help each other feel loved. That's great and wonderful. What this is about is when we're fixated and we have to have it a certain way, to the extent we're fixated and having another change and treat us a certain way, we cannot in those moments discover that that loving presence is already here. I call this tracing back the longing. And I invite you to explore it. We'll just touch into it a bit tonight. But when you're feeling you want something, to sense, to put aside the object of the wanting. You know, I want to feel accomplished and do this. I want to feel loved and have this person treat me this way. You know, I want my house to look a certain way and sense what is it really that you're wanting and keep tracing it back and tracing it back and find what is it that you're actually wanting to experience. And if you pay attention to that, this is the magic, it's here. So we begin to more and more practice in a way where rather than fixating, we get in touch with the deepest aspiration. Barbara Kingsolver says this, Here's what I've decided. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope, not admire it from a distance, but live right in it under its roof. What I want is so simple, I almost can't say it elementary kindness. When we fixate our desire on an object, it's forever out of our reach and we're never at home. When we inhabit the longing, we become that which we long for. What we long for is what we are. We long for the kindness, the love, the awakeness, the presence, it's already what we are, tracing back the longing. So we're going to meditate and do a final closing piece, a very short meditation, but just to say that it's totally natural to desire, it's part of existing, and it's our conditioning to fixate that desire outward. It's part of our conditioning. And It's our capacity, and this is the invitation that the Buddha offered. It's our capacity to recognize the fixating and relax open so that we can discover the source of our longing.
Srinur Sargadatta says it this way. I like this particular angle. He says, the problem with you is not that you have desires, but that you desire so little. Why not desire at all? Why not want complete fulfillment, joy, and freedom? Not to narrow it, not to fixate. So, if you will, just to let this be a pause where you become still, where you let your attention be right here. You might take a few full breaths. And again to sense if there's some facet of wanting mind that's asking for your attention, where there could be some more freedom. In other words, where you get hooked. And you might begin as you just recognize, okay, so this is where I get hooked, by just bowing to it just to honor that this is the way life has unfolded itself and this is the portal. This can be your entrance, your place of discovering more freedom. Not to make it wrong. So you might get fixated on how you want another person to treat you, on how you want to accomplish something, on what you want for another person. Just to recognize and allow that for now. You might say, it's like this right now. This is the conditioning of wanting in this body-mind at this time of my life. So there's really um, giving it space. And taking some moments to investigate it, to sense what's it like when I'm wanting this. And again, as before, to exaggerate a little and really sense the the movement of wanting in your body, in your heart. Remembering why this matters to you, what the consequences of not getting are. letting yourself dive down a bit and sense what is really the deepest want in this. In other words, if you could get what you wanted, what would you really get? What would that give you? Would it give you peace? Would it give you the feelings of connection? What is it you're really wanting?
and have it what you really want. If it's just to feel the loving that's possible, inhabit that, or the peace, the oneness, whatever you're most wanting, inhabit that longing. Be the longing, be longing. Just surrender into it, be it. In a cellular way. And you might sense when fully present, when you're being the longing, is anything missing? Isn't it true that what you long for is already here? Raymond Carver says, and did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.